good to see you this morning. You were very kind to endure me with all my allergies preaching last Sunday. And for those of you here Wednesday night, you had me coughing all Wednesday night, and I am slightly better, so thank you for your prayers. You get me hoarse and a little bit coughing this morning. But thankfully, the power is not in the preacher's voice, but in the Word of God, right? And that is our hope. If I'm hoarse or crackly voice with allergies, the power is in the Word of God, and we are thankful for that. Well, we're continuing our journey through the Gospel of John this morning. I want us to do what we've done several other times to remind us of the purpose of the book because everything we see in the Gospel of John builds around one idea. And John told us why he wrote the book, and that was John chapter 20, verse 31. And so I want us to see that, and I want us to say it out loud together. So would you just read it off the screen with me again? John 23. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Well, I hope that's, that's true in your own experience as we're going through John. These are written not just for our intellectual pursuit. This is written that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And not just that we would believe, but that we would have life in his name. If you remember last week, we saw this come true for the Samaritan woman at the well. We saw that Jesus gave her living Water, In spite of her resistance and all the obstacles that she put forth, Jesus gave her living water that changes her. And do you remember what the living water was? Or should I say who the living water was? The Holy Spirit. Jesus gave her the Holy Spirit. He, the Holy Spirit, removed her shame and gave her belief. That He, the Holy Spirit, freed her from her religious tradition and made her into a worshiper. That the Holy Spirit freed her from her self-focus and her concern about her convenience and made her a bold witness for others. And my prayer for you this week has been that you've experienced the Holy Spirit this week. Even in your toughest days, you've experienced the living water, the Holy Spirit that changes you, that gives you hope, that gives you the ability to worship God no matter what is going on. Well, this morning as we continue through John, John pauses that story for just a moment, interjects another story, and then comes back to it. John the Apostle, as he writes this, is a master at weaving two stories together. And we'll see that at several other places throughout this book. And so the story this morning is going to turn from the woman at the well at Samaria to the disciples and then go back to the woman at the well and the Samaritans. So we're going to see these two stories weave together. Now before we get to that, let me remind you from what we saw last week that we saw that Jesus had to go through Samaria. He must go through Samaria. If you remember from last Sunday, that must was not a must of convenience. He wasn't just trying to find the shortcut. He had to go through because it was his divine mission. It was the must of divine mission of doing what God had called him to do. And yes, in particular, that was to take the gospel, the message of hope, to the Samaritan woman at the well. But there was something much bigger going on than just the story of the Samaritan woman. And we're going to see more of that divine mission, the more of that must of why I had to go through Samaria in our text for this morning. But it's not just the divine mission of Jesus. We're going to see what the must is for his disciples as well. Because we're going to learn a little bit more not only about Jesus' mission, but the mission, his expectations for his disciples then and for us now as well. But before we get to that, I want to ask you a question to consider this morning. And that is this. What is it that gives you the greatest sense of urgency? For what is it that gives you the greatest sense of urgency? What is it you feel that urgency about in life? And it may be different things for different people. I know when we moved to Montgomery two months ago, the greatest urgency for our family was how to get everything out of boxes so we could survive. For about two weeks, that was all-consuming to us. Like, I could think of almost nothing else of how do I walk through my house and find my clothes? How do I find my gym bag? How do, whatever it is, you know, where is everything? It's in boxes. There's a sense of urgency to get unpacked. 
I know I felt that urgency in these early months, these four months of being your pastor. A lot of the urgency I felt is trying to get to know you and know your stories, but there's been urgency I felt towards facility issues and administrative things we've been trying to tackle in these months. There's been urgency in things that we have felt on that. But what is it for you? What is it that gives you the greatest sense of urgency? Is it your, your kid's education and making sure they have a 4.0? Is it your kid's sports, making sure they become the top athlete in their school? Is it your own career, trying to rise the corporate ladder and succeed in what you're doing, so much so that you work all the time and bring your work home and it consumes you because it's what you feel urgency about? But it doesn't have to be those things. Could it be for you the sense of urgency is trying to please people? It's hard to say no to everyone because you want to make sure everyone's happy and likes you and you feel a sense of people-pleasing. That's what drives you. You feel urgency in that. Whether some type of perfectionism, your urgency is making sure your house, your clothes, your car, whatever it is, looks perfect all the time. Perhaps the urgency is not missing your favorite game or sports or television show or movie. I don't know what it is for you, but they're all things that capture, different things that capture our attention and we feel senses of urgency about. What we're going to see this morning is Jesus felt very urgent about something. There was something for which Jesus felt urgency, but his disciples did not share that same sense of urgency that Jesus did. He's going to call them out on it. Because there's something that, but the same thing that Jesus felt urgent about, the disciples did not feel very urgent about. I know in my own life, often I don't feel urgent enough about as well. And so Jesus teaches them and teaches us as well. So look at John chapter 4. We're going to start this morning in verse number 31. And we're going to verse 31 through 42. And as I'm reading, be listening for this. For what is it that Jesus feels the greatest sense of urgency here? What is it that Jesus feels a sense of urgency about that his disciples miss that he's going to teach them about <coughs> Excuse me, in this particular text? So as we come to John chapter 4, verse 31, can I ask you to stand, please, in honor of the reading of the Word of God? What a, what a treasure we have that God in his kindness has revealed himself to us and given his Word to us, and we can hold a copy of it. I'm reading out the ESV translation here. John chapter 4, starting in verse 31. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him anything to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. Verse 39, many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Would you pray with me? Father, we are grateful for your word to us. Father, we are thankful in your kindness that you've granted belief to the Samaritans and to see this account for us here. And Lord, I pray that today as we look at, Lord Jesus, what gave you such a sense of urgency, what you taught your disciples in might be instructive for us today as well. And so we ask you to use your word to transform us, change us, so that we can be who you desire for us to be. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, and you may be seated. So what is it that Jesus felt the greatest sense of urgency about? What is it he wanted his disciples then and now to understand was urgent? Well, I'll give you the main point of the message, like we do a lot of Sundays, and I think it'll answer our question. That is simply this. Jesus wants his disciples to understand the urgency of taking his message 
to those who do not yet believe. Jesus wants his disciples to understand the urgency of taking his message to those who do not yet believe. And I hope as we read this, you notice a little bit of irony here. This woman at the well of Samaria, she's been a believer at the most a few hours. And she already feels this urgency to go tell others the hope of Jesus. Yet these disciples who have walked with Jesus for some time now have totally lost that sense of urgency that this new believer already has. And we'll see that unfold in this text for this morning. And so to kind of make sense of what's going on here, I want us to glance back at just a few verses from what we saw last week to make sure we all understand the context. So go back in John chapter 4 to verse 4. So just turn back a page or scroll up a little bit on your Bible app. But John chapter 4, verse 4. And he, Jesus here, he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting there beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. Now, just to remind us what I mentioned a moment ago, this was a must of divine mission. He had to. He must pass through. This was not convenience. This was he was having to go through to do what God had called him to do. He is God. He's a son of God, yet he's also son of man. Jesus is fully God and fully man. And here we see a glimpse of his humanity. Notice Jesus' condition in verse 6 here. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting there by the well. Friends, Jesus experienced fatigue. Jesus experienced hunger. He experienced thirst. He is sitting in the heat of the day around noon by a well, thirsty. I would presume hungry, though the text does not say that as well. And weary. He is exhausted. Friends, when you are tired, hungry, thirsty, what is it that energizes you? What is it that refreshes you? When you're in the state like Jesus is here, where you're wearied, you're exhausted, what is it that you run to to get refreshed? Now keep that in mind as we go through our text for this morning. Now glance down at verse 8, a little bit more context. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. So Jesus is now sitting alone at the well. The Samaritan woman comes. The disciples are away. They're buying food, presumably looking for kosher food for them to eat. The disciples have gone into a town full of non-believers. They're in a town that we don't have any record at this point of having one follower of Jesus yet in this town. And Jesus' disciples go into the town of people who have never heard of Jesus. And their urgency was food, physical sustenance. Now one more thing for context before we get back to our text for the morning. Look at verses 27 through 30 now, still in chapter 4. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he, Jesus, was talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you see her? Why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into her town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. So Jesus' disciples returned from their little mission in the town. They bring the food with them. When they come back, Jesus is talking to the Samaritan woman. And they are puzzled at why in the world their master will be talking to a Samaritan woman who does not yet believe. They're puzzled, but they don't even have the courage to ask Jesus about this. They just watch from a distance. And notice this woman who, the Samaritan woman, what we saw last week, she believes and she, she realizes this is the Christ. What is the first thing she does when she realizes Jesus is the Christ? She runs to the town. And she goes, tells her, could this be the Christ? There's a hopeful anticipation that, and she invites them to come. She left her former concerns. She left her, her focus on her convenience of water. She even leaves her water pot to go tell people, come see the Christ. Isn't that the, thing, the very thing the disciples first did when they found Jesus? Think back to many weeks ago as we started John and went to John 1. When they realized who Jesus was, they ran and invited a friend and told someone else. The very thing the disciples first got, the sense of urgency when they met Jesus, they have now totally lost sight of. And here's this new believer being urgent, feeling urgency to get the gospel to her friends. And the disciples are wondering why in the world Jesus is even talking to her and that they lost sight 
of the urgency of getting the message to non-believers. And where we ended last week was verse 30. They, which is the Samaritans coming out, they, the Samaritans, went out of the town and were coming to him. So literally as the disciples are watching, the masses of non-believers from Samaria are coming to where Jesus and the disciples are. So keep that in mind. The scene right now is the masses of non-believers from the town of Samaria are coming to Christ. And with that in mind, we come back to where we are today, and that is verse 31. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat! The very thing on their mind is they brought Jesus food. They brought him food to satisfy him. And they basically demand of him, Rabbi, eat right now. Now again, what is the scene? The non-believers in mass who've never heard of Jesus have been told that Christ is here and they're flocking to where Jesus and the disciples are. And all the disciples can think about here is, we brought you food, it's time for you to sit down and eat Jesus. They're totally lost sight of what's going on. Now, if you're tired and wearied and hungry, I asked you a few minutes ago, what do you, how do you get refreshed? What do you do? Well, if you're Jesus and you're tired and you're hungry and you're thirsty and your disciples offer you food, what are you going to say to them? I'd be like, sure, tell the others to wait. I'm ready to get a meal in me right now. You know, Julia's discovered with me, if she's trying to have a serious conversation, this has happened more than once, she'll be trying to have a serious, deep conversation with me. She'll be like, I can tell you're not listening to what I'm saying because you're hungry right now. And it's true. If I'm hungry, like, I, I can barely focus on what my wife is telling me. And so more than once, she's been like, I'm going to get you something to eat and then we'll carry this conversation. I get food in me, I'm fine, we have our deep conversation. That, that just happens in our house. So I know how I and my humanity would react right here with this because of my own weakness on this. But Jesus isn't like, great, thanks for the food, tell others to wait, I'll get this food in me and then I'll talk to them. That's not all what he says. Look at how Jesus responds. Though he's wearied, here's what he says to them. Look at verse 32. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. This is, his concern was not food. He's using imagery to communicate that, much like he did with Nicodemus and being born again. We're talking to the Samaritan woman of the well with living water. He uses imagery here. And his imagery here is the very imagery of the Old Testament. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. Man does not live by bread alone. Deuteronomy, it was taught in Deuteronomy. Jesus repeats that at the time of temptation. Man does not live by bread alone. And that's basically what he's saying right here. Again, listen to verse 32 in light of Deuteronomy 8. I have food to eat that you do not know about. Deuteronomy 8, man does not live by bread alone. What was it that had so refreshed him? What is it that has so filled him and satisfied him? He was wearied, and now he's refreshed. What refreshed him? Doing the will of God. Taking the message of the gospel to a woman who had never heard. That is what refreshed him. He wasn't refreshed because he had water. He wasn't refreshed because he had curled up on the sofa and watched a cool movie. He wasn't refreshed because he had some downtime for me. He was refreshed because he had done what God had sent him to do of sharing the gospel with someone who had never heard. He's saying, I have been refreshed by something that you don't even understand. And we lose a little bit in our English translation of how he communicates that to them because when, he, when this was written in Greek in verse 32, the I and the you are emphatic. I mean, there was a stress on it. He's basically saying here in verse 32, he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. He's stressing the distinction between himself and the disciples that he has a type of refreshment that they don't even fathom right now. He's showing the distance between where he is and where they are, and that's really true, because look at verse 33. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? You notice the disciples are so confused, they don't even have the courage to ask Jesus to explain. Once again, they withdraw and kind of talk to each other, like, did you bring him something? I did it. Did you bring him something? And it's all, you can imagine this whispering back and forth amongst them <coughs> of trying to understand what is going on here. But Jesus, in his kindness to them, does not leave them confused, he begins to explain to them, and he's going to show them that they should feel a sense of urgency like he feels 
and taking his message to those who do not yet believe. And so look at how he explains this to them in verse 34. Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. What is it that sustains Jesus? What is it that refreshes Jesus? What is it that satisfied him here? It wasn't food. It wasn't water. It was namely doing the Father's will, doing what he was sent to do. My friends, unlike us, Jesus is God. So this is not just some hopeful attempt at doing what he's supposed to do. It's actually accomplishing it. Notice what comes after the and here in verse 34. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. This word accomplish is the same word, the same root form of the word that Jesus uses in John 19.30 when he cries out from the cross, it is finished. And so you read the word accomplish here, you should hear the word finished as well in your mind because it's the same root word here. He's saying, I came to do the will of him who sent me and to finish this work, the work that God has sent him to do. Friends, whatever Jesus sets out to do, he will accomplish. His plans cannot be thwarted. He is God. And what did he come to do? Well, we'll get to it eventually when we get to John 12, which, well, we're in John 4 right now. So we'll get to there in a few months, right? Whenever we get to John 12, we'll see it in John 12 when he says, Father, glorify your name. What is it Jesus came to do? He came to glorify the name of the Father. It's repeated in John 17. And what does that specifically look like? There's a lot that we'll unpack when we get to that of what it meant to glorify the Father's name. But part of it is what we see in Luke 19.10. Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost. What was the work he came to do? Ultimately, it was to glorify God. And part of what that entailed was drawing out worshipers for the Father um, from those who did not believe. Because God is worthy of worship from every person. So Jesus came to seek and to save those who were lost, who were separated. And that has just happened with a Samaritan woman. This woman who was alienated from God has now been brought near. This woman who was under God's wrath is now under God's mercy. This woman who was far off is now a child of God. And so to help his disciples understand how all this happens, he's going to shift his imagery in teaching them again. He's just explained his food, his satisfaction is in doing God's work. But now he's going to help them see they have to have the same passion, the same urgency he has. He's going to do that by shifting from the imagery of the food to the imagery of the harvesting of the food. And so look back at verse 35. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. You know, his disciples have just come to him and told him what to do. Rabbi, eat. Now he's going to tell them what to do instead because he's the one who really should be the boss here. So he's going to correct their understanding. He starts with quoting a proverb in their culture at the time. Here in verse 35, he says, Do you not say, there's this common cultural proverb, there are yet four months in the harvest. What in the world does that mean? Best we understand, in Palestinian culture, they divide up the agriculture year into four periods. And this particular period he's referencing right here is the period of time from the end of seed time to beginning of harvest. If you ever plant something, there's not much you can do between seed time and harvest. And so in the culture, the best we can tell, this proverb became as a way to express understanding. If you really can't do anything right now, so just kind of sit around and wait. Growth is slow. It cannot be hurried. So we'll just take our time. So which is basically what the disciples were doing on spiritual matters. So they were just kind of sitting around passively with all these non-believers coming to them. Jesus is saying to them, and he's going to turn it on his head, there are four months in the harvest. He's saying, no, not in spiritual things. Don't wait around. Verse 35, look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for the harvest. Friends, the harvest is already there. In God's timing, we don't have a period of sitting around waiting. God causes people to already be active, seeking to get the gospel to those who do not Yet believe, and literally right before their eyes, the harvest was coming. The mass of the city are coming out to Jesus and his disciples at that point. And this is to convey a sense of urgency. 
Most of us in this room, as I got to know you, I don't know anyone who's a farmer in here yet. But if you know farmers, harvest time is a time of incredible urgency. It's not a time you sit by passively. Farmers during harvest time are not hanging out at the movie theater. They're not just killing time. They're like, oh, it's 5 o'clock. I'm done for the day. When harvest time is here, they work until the harvest comes in. I don't have firsthand experience with that, but I remember one time my boys and I were watching a special, a television special on combine harvesters. My boys are fascinated by big machinery. So we were watching this special of how combine harvesters were built, how they're maintained, and how they're used. And one thing that struck me in that is watching these big, massive machines out in the fields out west harvesting grain. And when one or two of this broke down, there was panic among the farmers. They were out there. They brought it. They, they had nothing they would not do to get the mechanics on site to fix those harvesters because they had to get the harvest in. I remember that image of the urgency those farmers felt, the urgency those mechanics felt. Everyone who was involved in any way, shape, form, or fashion bringing that harvest before it went bad, they felt a sense of urgency. That is the image that Jesus is trying to convey to us here in the harvest. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see the fields are white for the harvest. The, the disciples needed to quit worrying about their food. The Samaritans were ready. They were coming. Well, that brings us to verses 36 through 38. There's imagery here about people who sow and people who reap. Now, let me tell you up front, there's about three or four different ways you can interpret these verses, okay? I'm going to tell you the way I interpret it. You can disagree with me. That's okay. If you want to hear all the other interpretations, I'll be glad to tell you that. I'm going to spare you that one this morning. But I'm going to tell you how I understand verses 36 through 38 and how it fits in to this. Look back at verse 36 to 38. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life. So that sower and reaper may rejoice together. Verse 37, for here the saying holds true. And here's another proverb. One sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. What in the world does this mean? Well, I understand this in light of verse 30. They went out, the Samaritans went out of the town and were coming to him. So what's going on here? Already the one who reaps is receiving wages. Who was the one who brought the people out to him? It's a Samaritan woman. She's already receiving wages. The Samaritan woman who's been a believer just a few hours is already receiving eternal rewards. She is already in her early stage of belief gone to the town and invited the non-believers come see this Christ. She's already brought them out. She is the one who is already reaping there. And as we'll see in a minute, many of them believe. Well, who says who sowed before her? Well, we have to get into a little speculation because the text does not tell us who had prepared the hearts ahead of time. But this particular town where they were, this town of Sychar, where this well was, is right next to where John the Baptist had been ministering for a season. So do you not think that some of the Samaritans, if John the Baptist is out in the wilderness right next to their town baptizing, would have not been some of those masses of all the people who had gone out to see him? Most likely then, as I understand this, the one who had sown was John the Baptist. Was he not the one whose mission was to prepare people for Jesus? He had sown the seed. He had prepared the way. And so when Jesus comes, the Samaritan woman says, the Christ is here. People who, in my understanding, who would have heard John the Baptist, who knew the Messiah was coming, who had been prepared by the Holy Spirit, as John the Baptist had preached repentance to them, are now coming out and they are responding to them. What that reminds us is that if in God's kindness to us, we get to lead people to faith in Christ, we have no grounds to boast. Because it's not just our work. People have gone before us in God's sovereign plan. Here God has sent John the Baptist to prepare the people. He then sent... The lady who calls them out and Jesus brings in the harvest here with that. But is that not what we see elsewhere in Scripture? Just listen along. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 is probably a familiar passage to you. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 verses 6 through 9, listen to what Paul said. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one. 
and each will receive his wages according to his labor. If we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. That's the very thing that's happening right here. John the Baptist had sown the seed. He planted the seed. The Samaritan woman basically watered it, and Jesus brings in the harvest here. Well, there's no grounds for him to boast. We're all part of God's plan in this. So here in the situation, who can rejoice? Well, John the Baptist can because he helped sow the seed. Who can rejoice? The woman can because she had invited the people. But ultimately, Jesus rejoices. This was his mission. He came to seek and save the lost, and the lost of this town are responding to it. His mission is being accomplished. So Jesus is trying to help through this imagery of laboring and harvesting and reaping. He's trying to help his disciples understand the urgency of taking his message to those who do not yet believe. He wants them to have joy in what he's called them to do. Well, that takes us back to verse 39 as John weaves back in the story from last week to what we're looking at this morning. So look back at verse 39 into this as the stories weave back together. <coughs> in verse 39, many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. And friends, here the key theme of believing reemerges in the book once again. Hours before, as far as we know, there's no Samaritan believers. And now there are many Samaritan believers. Look at verse 39 again. It says, many Samaritans from that town believed in him. And I love how verse 41 phrases, and many more believed because of his word. In case we're missing it, John's saying many believe, but not just many, many more now believe amongst the people who had not previously believed. And friends, this belief changes them. We saw it early in the book of John, but belief is not just intellectual Belief is knowledge that leads to action. It's faith. It's something that changes us. And we see the Samaritans already being changed here. And I see two things that indicate they really do believe and the masses here are really following Jesus and being changed. The first thing I see of how their belief has led to action and changed them is look at how hungry they are to grow. Perhaps we use the imagery today of being disciple. But look at verse 40. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them and he stayed there two days. This word ask here. Is, is in a continuous tense. If you think back to a sermon I preached a long time ago here, long time ago, four months ago, right? Maybe three months ago. Um, Matthew chapter 7, ask, seek, and knock. If you remember there, the ask, the seek, and the knock were continuous tense. Ask and keep on asking. Seek and keep on seeking. Knock and keep on knocking. You will find it will be open to you, that text. Same tense here, the word ask. literally means ask and keep on asking. So what this is saying to them is, so when the Samaritans came to Jesus, they asked him and kept on asking 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 him to stay with them. Since the hunger they had, now they met the Christ, their belief had changed and they wanted to be in his presence. They wanted to learn from him. And so Jesus honored their request as they asked and kept on asking. And he stayed for two days. Friends, to be a fly on the wall and have known what Jesus told the Samaritans for those two days, I believe he grounded them in the word of God and who he was. But they were hungry to be with him and he honored that request. But also, their belief changed their understanding the Samaritans, remember, were people who were isolated from the Jews. There was much hatred between them going both directions. But look at what happens in verse 42, their understanding of Jesus. They said to the woman, It's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the Samaritans. No. The Savior of the Jews. No. The Savior of what? The world. This isolated people group who was hated by others around them already in these first few hours gets that Jesus is for all People, their belief has changed them, and they got what the disciples missed. The disciples who couldn't fathom why Jesus would talk to a Samaritan woman, 
these Samaritans, these new believers, get that it's for the world. I love how one of the authors I read summarized this whole passage, but particularly this understanding of Jesus as the Savior of the world. Listen to what he said. He said, And so what was hidden from the wise and understanding Nicodemus is revealed to these spiritual babes. And while scribes and Pharisees stand aside, the pagan world flocks into the kingdom. I'll read that again for you. And so what was hidden from the wise and understanding Nicodemus is revealed to these spiritual babes. And while scribes and Pharisees stand aside, the pagan world flocks into the kingdom. Which is what's happening before the disciples' eyes here. There should be a sense of urgency for them because the fields are white for the harvest. And Jesus is drawing the people from all parts of the world to himself. And so Jesus wants his disciples to understand the urgency of taking his message to those who did not yet believe. Now for the disciples, as they hear this teaching, I hope they got it. Because all they had to do was literally, literally look up. And here come the Samaritans out from the city, ready to, for many to believe. The disciples had, and it was so striking in the irony, the disciples had just been in the city. These disciples who had been with Jesus, who should have understood his mission, had just been in this town where there were no believers buying food, but they were only in the town doing their business, not being on mission for Jesus. They were in the city full of lost people, and they were doing nothing about it. How did they miss that? How did the people who have been living with Jesus for some time now totally miss Jesus' mission? Well, we get into a little bit of speculation here, which is dangerous, right? Let me give you three speculations of why perhaps they missed it. One, they could have just been blind to Jesus' mission. They just may really not have gotten yet what Jesus was trying to do. Number two, and I think this is a good possibility, they were distracted with good things. There was nothing sinful about them going to get food. But I believe they got distracted with doing the things that consumed life, and they missed what was most important before them. But number three, and again, this is speculation, but I think this could be true. I don't think they expected a harvest there. If you remember the, the hatred the Jews and the Samaritans had for one another, the Jews did not like the Samaritans. They would go out of their way to avoid it. Jesus had to go through. And if you remember, when, G, when they walk up and they see Jesus talking to the Samaritan woman, they don't really understand why he'd even be talking to her. I don't think the disciples really expected there to be a harvest there because they didn't really expect the Samaritans to be a type of people who would be interested in the Messiah. Friends, as I start thinking about that, is that any different from what we face today? As we seek today to feel a sense of urgency of taking Jesus' message to those who've never heard. How easy is it for us to forget the mission of what we're called to do? I mean, I think back to John 20, 21, which we'll get to in a year, eventually. In John 20, 21, Jesus says, As the Father sent me, so send I you. He says to the disciples, that's true of us. What is our mission, friends? Is a church, as the people of Gateway, as individual followers of Christ? Jesus says, as, as the Father sent me, I send you. What, and we'll talk more about this in the months to come. But what, the Father, what was Jesus' mission? It was to glorify God. That's our ultimate desire, is to glorify God. But out of that flow, this is our to seek and to save that which was lost. We don't have time for this morning. to be a sermon for a whole other day. But 2 Corinthians chapter 5, again to verse 18, that you are reconciled and he's given you the ministry of reconciliation. You are his ambassadors as God makes his appeal through you. Friends, if we are in Christ... It's not like a second tier we get to when we become ministers of reconciliation. If we are in Christ, we are saved to be ministers of reconciliation, to be ambassadors, to take this message of Jesus to those who have never heard. The reality is for most of us at Gateway, we don't do that because we're ignorant of the mission. Most of us have heard enough of the Word of God to know that what we're supposed to be doing and the urgency we should feel. So why don't we often feel that urgency? Again, I think for us, it's a lot of the other two. I think for me at least, I get distracted with good things. I get distracted with other things that 
take up my interest. And it goes back to that question I asked you at the beginning. For what do you feel the greatest sense of urgency? For most of us, if I polled us, uh, the first thing in our mind probably was not, how do I get the gospel to my lost family, my lost neighbor, my lost friend at school? Why do we not feel it? Because I think we get distracted. Again, we're not sinful things, but with other things that distract us. The other thing here, I think sometimes we don't expect a response. You know, I've only been living in Montgomery two months. I've only been working here four months. But one thing I've discovered among Christians, not just here, but across Montgomery, there seems to be a little bit of a sense of hopelessness for our city. When I talk to believers from different backgrounds and different, even in different churches, it's almost like we don't expect God to move in this city anymore. It's almost like a lot of the Christians have kind of treat Montgomery like it's a God-forsaken city. As I read this passage of the Samaritans, I can't help but I almost identify with the disciples here who didn't really, in my opinion, didn't really expect a response from people of Samaria. And do we really even expect God to be moving in Montgomery anymore? And so as I look at this text, I'm convicted, I'm reminded that Jesus wants his disciples, not just them, but he wants his disciples, us, a church, you and me, to understand the urgency of taking his message to those who do not believe, regardless of how busy we are, regardless of all the things going on in our lives, with kids, with school, with our jobs, or whatever else, regardless of how busy we are, we are called as his disciples to have a sense of urgency for what he's called us to do. We have a mission to glorify God and to point the lost to him. And friends, the lost, yes, they're on the other side of the world, but they're also right here. Some of the lost were to feel a sense of urgency for maybe living in our own homes with us. Some of the lost were to feel a sense of urgency for who need Jesus so much, maybe our neighbors on either side of us. Some of the loss that we should feel an urgency for, maybe friends at school, friends in the workplace, friends perhaps even who come to church with you on occasion. Friends, in the four months that I've had here with you at Gateway, one thing that strikes me that's so interesting is how spread out this church body is across the city. You have, we have people here living all the way up from Prattville down to Union Springs. People who come here from Wetumpka. People who come here from Pike Road. We are all over. We're not like a church where everyone lives in one neighborhood. Why? Because there's lost people who Jesus desires to seek and save who are all over the city. And in God's providence, he has put together a church family with a passion for the Lord. And he's scattered us across this whole river region right here. This is also not a church where all the kids go to one school, or all the kids are homeschooled, or all the kids are public school, or all the kids are private school. Our people are scattered across multiple schools, across multiple ways of education. Why? Because God has this heart for the lost across all different parts of the city. Workplace. We're not just a church with just military or just engineers or just whatever. I mean, we're, there's such a diversity in workplace here. Why? Because there's lost people in all these different places who need the hope of Jesus. And what's he called us to do? He's called us to do the mission he's called, that he himself was doing. And that's to take his message to those who never have heard. There was a famous missionary leader who said something really striking. He said, expect great things from God. Attempt great things for God. One of the things that's striking as we look at this particular account of John 4, we're reminded salvation is all of God's work. We can't pressure people in the kingdom. We can't talk people in the kingdom. We can't convince someone to be a Christian. Only God can do that. That's God's sovereign work. But yet God chooses to use us as his mouthpiece. So we expect God to move, but we attempt great things for him as his ambassadors. You know, I don't know what that's going to look like for you, but I've been convicted this week, even studying this text, of how insulated I've become in a Christian bubble. And the, again, the urgency I felt these first four months here has been trying to get to know you guys, and I'm, I'm enjoying every moment of it. But in doing so, I've gotten in the church bubble. All my time is at mealtimes at Chappies and Chick-fil-A and other places with gateway people. I'm working out with gateway people at the gym. I am, even in God's providence, my next-door neighbors on both sides and behind me are all Christians. I'm surrounded with believers everywhere I turn. And I've gotten isolated in a little bubble. And as I'm thinking through this and the urgency to reach the lost and the many lost around us, I'm going, well, who do I even know in Montgomery who's not a believer by name? 
And so as you pray for yourself, that God would stretch you and show you who you should feel an urgency for, would you pray for me as your pastor in that as well, that my bubble wouldn't just be gateway. I want to shepherd you well and I want to be part of your lives, but I also need to feel the sense of urgency for the lost arms because there's lost all over the city where God has placed us. So pray that for yourself. Pray that for your pastor. Pray that for the other staff. Pray that for the elders. Pray that for the deacons. Pray that for your Sunday school teachers and your life group leaders. Pray that we'll be a people who not only love God well and love one another well, but we will have a sense of urgency of getting the gospel to those around us. Now, that's going to look different for different ones of us, but can I give you a very specific challenge for this month? And I alluded to it in the gatepost that you hopefully received. Friends, we have a lot of opportunities to do a very simple invitation to people this month. Would you come with me to, and you fill in the blank, Good Friday service. Friends, that's going to be a special evening. We're just going to be, I'm not preaching, we'll show, do a brief devotion, but it's going to be a lot of singing, a lot of scripture reading. It's going to be a very thematic evening of focusing on Jesus' death and his burial. You can invite a non-believer to that and just say, why don't you come experience that? Easter Sunday morning, invite a non-believer to come with you on Easter Sunday morning, whether to sunrise or to here. We have a lot of other things coming up. We have the chairman of the Department of Theology at Southern Seminary coming to help us understand the Trinity. It's going to be a great opportunity. I know one of you has already invited one of your non-believing friends to come get some of his questions answered about the Trinity. If you have friends who are very deep thinkers who have objects to Christianity, invite them to come here, Bruce Ware. Perhaps you have a friend who, has, who, who just can't believe the Bible's true. Well, bring him to Secret Church. We simulcast David Platt for six hours on the authority of the Bible. They're going to get a lot about in six hours on a Friday night about why the Bible is reliable and true. Or perhaps you have someone who would never even come to those things, but they like music. Friends, God has gifted us with, I believe, one of the best praise teams in the whole city of Montgomery. We have incredibly talented and gifted by God musicians here. We're going to have a night of praise coming up in the month. We're just going to, no preaching, I promise you, and that we're just going to sing that night. Just sing our hearts to the Lord. Bring your friends who like music. There, there's so many creative ways this month just to say, God, would you show me someone in my path I can be intentional with, I can feel urgency to pray for. And out of praying for them and feeling that urgency, just simply do a simple invitation. Would you come with me? Easter, would you come me as we talk about the Trinity? Would you come me as we sing? And just see what God might do in our midst. If in God's grace to us, we as a people, I as your pastor, you as well, we find a sense of urgency in taking Jesus' message to those around us who have never heard. Would you pray with me? Father God, we are grateful for your word. We are grateful for your word that changes us and stretches us and does not leave us where we are. And Father, I pray for myself and I pray for this Gateway family. Lord, it is such a blessing to get to pastor this church family. Lord, I'm thankful for the heart of these people to love you, God, and to know you, to live in community together. <clears throat> Thank you for the heart these people already have for the lost around them. And Lord, I pray that you would take that and you would increase that in us. God, would you increase the sense of urgency we feel to take the gospel to those around us. Lord Jesus, your words are just as true then as they are, or just as true now as they were then. Look up, look, look up at your eyes. The fields are white for the harvest. God, would you give us grace to see that you're not done with Montgomery yet? To realize that there are people you are still drawing to yourself right here with us, whether it's in our neighborhoods, whether it's in our schools, whether it's in our workplaces, wherever it might be. And Lord, would you give us grace to realize that you still desire to use us to get the gospel to those who have never heard? Or would you push us beyond a place of complacency? Would you burn our hearts afresh? Even today, Lord, would you put on each one of our hearts and minds just even one non-believer that our paths intersect with, that we will begin to start faithfully praying for. Lord, I'm convinced if each one of us starts praying and interceding regularly for someone in our path that you've already divinely put there who needs to hear Jesus' message of hope and reconciliation, just like the Samaritan woman the well needed. God, I can't wait to see what you're going to do if we would all start faithfully laboring and praying for that one and inviting them along. 
Lord, would you have your way in our midst? Thank you for the gospel that changes. Thank you for the gospel that saves us. Thank you for making us more and more into who you desire for us to be. And we commit these things into your hands for you to do as you see fit. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand and sing?